Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to a most delightful edition of Thrush and Treasure, the Torture Chamber musical comedy podcast that went knock, knock, knocking on Heaven's Door, but ended up in Hades Town. And speaking of knock, knock. Who's there? Who's there? Trust Daniel, you're not going to want to respond to this one. <laughs> oh no, okay. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? Aaron. Aaron who? No, it's Aaron Ware. You stupid bitch. And I'm joined <laughs> as usual by my crusty sidekick, because if wishes were bakers, we'd all have our own Evan the Metal Man. How you doing? <laughs> hey, yeah, pretty good. It's 5am. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, let's start the day off. Do you have an apology for me from last week's episode where you accused me of making up funk rock? Yeah, yeah apparently the, the wiki is right now. Yeah, apparently Wikipedia lists that song as funk rock. And when I saw that, I was vindicated. So would you like to apologise <laughs> where everybody can hear it, Evan? I bow down to your superior musical intellect. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Now, I pulled yeah. it out of my ass. It was no intellect at all. I made it up, but I was right, apparently. But anyways, guess what? What? We have another iconic diva in the studio today. And he is here to tell us where we can get an amen. No, really? Some of us are single. I'd even settle for a Steve. Aw. Anyway, where was I? All right, break out the burn book because this beautiful, brave, bubbly, bearish bloke broke barriers in the biz with the brutally bold and boldly brutal bully before hitting the club with Party Monster and with two true crime cult films to his name. The police proceeded to pursue this performer of Pinterest who popped up perfectly in a plethora of procedural productions from CSI to Burn Notice to portraying Peggy Carter's brother in Conviction, but it's the conviction this courageous chap cultivates in his creative choices that convinces consumers of his acting chops and his contagiously charismatic qualities which creep up on a country queen like a cricket in heat. (laughs) And it's no surprise that this bright spark has stood out to the cops because this big D rose in Brooklyn like a tree grows in Brooklyn before uprooting and replanting in Florida where he blossomed on stage and had audiences eating out of his palms literally (laughs) and soon this award nominated performance proceeded to bloom into a versatile and varied evergreen career where everything Mr. Minister administers is photosynthesized into something seriously iconic solidified by standout stints on screen that saw this sexy soldier go cruising on a ferry in Spielberg's War of the Worlds, which he was well prepared for after dealing with the devil's dolls and dilemmas Damien dealt with in his third true crime cult favourite, Mean Girls, with whom he bopped and boogied in Party Down, with dancing that had us looking twice and sideways, just like his confronting role in Looking and its creatively titled follow-up, Looking the Movie. And whilst this killer pad one sharpened his finger knives on Jersey Shorzical, a rock opera, letting us mock the snooky, he also made us hock a loogie in I Spit on Your Grave, Evan. Sorry, even then, <laughs> none of this ridiculousness highlights just how bright this star has been to the lives of LGBTQ plus youth across the world, which only accentuates why this perky little podcasting Christian art curator, actor, comedian, activist, cabaret star, and all-round champion deserves the hugest, most awesome 
Aussiest g'day, how's it going? And a cheerful yes, Franzesus, as we shepherd this angelic artiste into our torture chamber of biblical proportions. But even that won't be as painful as walking in on a fight between drag queens when he was a part of one of the most awkward moments to ever happen in RuPaul's Drag Race history. See? I can't, but I can't wait to welcome to the show, fully tucked and snatched to the heavens, ready for the delectably divine Daniel Franzese. Holy shit, what is happening in this world right now? You are on my show. Wow, that's impressive. Goodness me, thank you so much for... That was, wow, that's a lot of words. Yes, that was a lot of alliteration. I did warn you, it was very silly and over the top. No, it was very fun. I love it. I've always been yep. a fan of tongue twisters. I'm pr- I'm pretty good at them. Yep. The one I knew, I learned a new one. Uh, there's a chip shop in space that sells spaceship shaped chips. There's a chip shop in space that sells what was it? Spaceship shaped chips. Jesus. There's a chip shop in space that sells spaceship spaceship shaped chips. And you're supposed to say three times fast. Like, there's a chip shop in space that sells spaceship shaped chips. I'll, I'll get there eventually. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because I wrote down at the very start of all that, do not joke about bully or party monster because they are true crimes. So, you know, real people were murdered. Uh, we can still make fun of a movie. No, still, like, I I had to be um respectful about it. So I guess... But yeah, true, true. It's all I would expect from Thrash and Treasure. <laughs> from- That's it. Yes, well... Anyways, um, welcome to the show. This is a uh, torture chamber. Oh, I was tortured listening to the other, one of the albums that you that you're. Missing the <laughs> yes, awesome. I'll we'll get. To I that. think I still have a headache. Yeah. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> well, okay. We'll we'll jump straight into the metal now. What would be if you were a rock star? What would be in your ultimate fantasy, crazy, over-the-top rider? Uh, you know, I heard that Katy Perry has a new puppy at every location when she's on tour. Oh, I hate her. Oh, puppies. That she could just play with for like an hour, and I want to do that so <laughs> bad. I think that's what I want. That is such a cool idea. Yeah, just like in every city, a new puppy that she gets to meet for a little bit. Just bring me puppies. And then it's actually kind of cool because she puts the puppy on her Instagram and it gets adopted from one of her fans, you know? Oh, nice. I want a puppy. It's like a double whammy. Like, so I that's what I would want. I just want a puppy full <laughs> stop and she's getting one every bloody stop. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I know. And Katy Perry has a cat named Kitty Perry. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, she does. <laughs> yeah, it's a great idea. Uh, I love Katy Perry now, apparently. I know, right? Yeah. Who wouldn't want puppies before every show? I mean, what a great idea. No, I'm jealous. Oh. I want. I just want a puppy full stop, but I don't own this house, so I'm probably not allowed to, am I? But anyway, <laughs> that's, um, that's a lot closer to a goat. So we are one step closer to that goat. But anyways, this week, mm-hmm. I um, set you with the task of picking a Christian metal band for us because, um, as I've stated on this show... Wait a minute. That band's the Christian band? Yes. Very. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah? The lyrics now make sense. I was listening to it, and I I was like, this sounds like... Because they're like, I bow down, I bow down. I was like, you know, some of these, like, crazy, like, metal bands that are all about, like, demons or whatever, if you just take the lyrics and turn it around, it could be Christian music, but it was. Yeah. The whole time it was Christian music. I think I, I think that part... Sl- <laughs> They've always identified as a Christian band and are, are quite sort of public about it. And like, yeah, 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 yeah we're all... Oh, my God, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. When I listen to, like, death metal type music, I like when it's one song in a moment 
you know yeah like for me like listening to a whole album of the same of that same it, it gets to me after a while it's like it becomes too too much this is the 60th episode that I've done of this show, Daniel. Help. <laughs> Help me. There's 60 metal albums, really? Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. 60 metal albums at least yeah. 10 times each. And then and there's the episodes yeah. that we booked but never happened. And then you're still stuck with that album in your head. And I'm still stuck with that music in my head, aren't I? So, <laughs> See, I, I appreciate it the other way around where it's, you know, you're forced to listen to an entire album, which, you know, we, we just don't do anymore. No, that's true. You know, apart from... You know, we've been getting into vinyl and, you know, we will put on albums. I miss the days of listening to a whole album. Those, that was fun. Yeah, exactly. And now, you know, now we have, I have to every week, you know, and it's mm-hmm. great. I love it. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, like I said, I go around and I'll listen to their, their first album and the latest album and listen to albums around this one. So, yeah, it's yeah. Just, yeah I'm quite enjoying it. Well, um, the album you picked was by a band called Demon Hunter, mm-hmm. and the album was called War, so I've written a review, and I'll quickly run through that. Alrighty. When I first saw the cover, that's what I wanted to run for. But knowing this is a Christian band, I decided to sharpen my crucifix, clicked play on the S-P-O-T-I-F-F-E, and immediately ran for cover. <laughs> well, this is called War, after all, and I'm too pretty ish to die yet (laughs) the first track cut to fit was um well let's just say i don't care if he's cut or uncut as long as he's not this angry which led me to track two on my side though i'd prefer on my back but i had to wonder with such gras whose side is he on close enough began but it was still so far from the hills being alive with the sound of hill songs or even dc talk track four was unbound by a sore throat apparently but grey matter confused me. Do they mean grey matter of the brain or of a fearsome yet benevolent God? Because this benevolent Christian metal is very generous in giving me a headache. <laughs> but jokes aside, the negative was where this score is headed. <laughs> Although Ash, track seven, proved this vampy slaying five-piece outfit is not yet burnt out. To find no place for you here didn't feel very Christian-y. Where are the arms wide open? I am sad to report that Leave Me Alone is not the Area 7 song. Damn, they could have taken these shackles off my feet so I can bop my head on the spot, (laughs) since really that's all one can do with this marginally unmelodic music. These are not the songs of praise which I sang out in strange warehouses across Melbourne as a confused 15-year-old, though I am reminded of those Christian days because this sounded more like me coughing for an hour into a bucket whilst a bunch of strangers I hardly knew prayed in tongues loudly around me to force the demons out of me. Oh, now I get why they're called Demon Hunter. (laughs) Two stars. This was not for me. This was not my Hillsong's. Every day, it's you I live for. Then the songs of worship we used to jump around to excitedly because we used to go to the coffee thing and, and put too much sugar and too much coffee in it and get really hyper and then do the, the worship and just be really hyperactive. But we would blame that on God. We would say that that excitement running through <laughs> our veins was God. It wasn't. We were 15-year-olds <laughs> on too much fucking coffee. So, yeah, um, this wasn't for me. 
Sorry, Evan. No, it's a shame. I, I like I said, I, I said earlier in the week, I tried to pick something middle of the road. This wasn't middle of the road, unless you're talking about roadkill getting run over in the middle of the road. <laughs> like I said, I was, you know, I was doing googling on on bands that identify as Christian. A lot of them are on the same record label uh, called Solid State Records. They're, you know, specifically a Christian record label, uh, yeah. you know, Christian christian bands and yeah i was sort of randomly sampling songs from different artists and you can go all the way to full-on screamy noise that i'm not a huge fan of you know to you know your like you said your arms wide open type bloody you know radio friendly stuff this is somewhere in the middle oh no no i'm not i no not even that that's creed no thank you god yeah, no that kind that's of stuff awful yeah. oh your arms wide open <laughs> I'd rather Shackles by Mary Mary. My wife absolutely loves Creed. We have Creed on vinyl. Shush. Uh. Oh, God, burn it. Burn it. I had to order it special. In the spirit of Shackles by Mary Mary, do you know When Jesus Say Yes by, uh, it's basically Destiny's Child. It's Michelle Williams' song, and it's, uh, but but all the girls are on it. And it's really good. It's like when Jesus say yes, nobody can say no. It's like it's got like a Caribbean vibe. It's really fun. Nice. No, I haven't heard of it. I do like my Destiny's Children though. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, that writing's on the wall was like that's a whole album I listened to. The whole album we were talking about that earlier, like that was a whole yeah. album album for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm much happier talking about Destiny's Child if that's okay with you, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd have to do my research. I only know okay, the singles. Go on. No, yeah. you can, we don't have to. I mean, we're just going on a mini tangent. I'm not trying to derail you. Oh, I'm always trying to derail him in the middle, but that's fine. <laughs> this is what it's all about. You can go off on tangents if you like. But yeah, I was just like I said, I was. <laughs> I, I just Googled a lot of Christian bands and, and did a lot of listening. So I hadn't actually, I, I think I'd heard of them. Um, they've been around for ages. Well, been around since like 2000. This is their uh, ninth album. Um, they actually released two in 2019, both on the 1st of March. Um, they War that we listened to and Peace. So, yeah. Oh, I get it. Yeah. So they did a War and a Peace. Um, and the Peace is the more laid back, nowhere near as heavy, sort of the softer side. And this was the heavier side. So I obviously chose the heavier side. The opposite of war isn't peace, it's creation. <laughs> and you'd think being Christians, they would know that. That's from Rent, by the way. Yeah, it's lovey boem, yeah. <laughs> the opposite of war isn't peace, it's creation. <laughs> Viva la vie boem. <laughs> That's my impression. <laughs> I would say don't give up your day job, Daniel, but you are an actor, so I'll shut my mouth instead and hide. Oh, dang. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, I, I did really pick this at random, but yeah, after listening through, it's I really like these guys. God, they're good. Do you? The, you know, musically, yeah, as musicians, they're they're really, really good. And and if you listen to the first album and to now, they've got so much better in the last 20 years, obviously. I didn't mention that the songs all sounded the same. Oh, they, they don't, though. And this time they actually did. They do. They all sound the they same. They do. Oh. I mean, if, it's a, if, you're, if you're trying to say that it's a cohesive through line, trying to tell something, maybe I could, like, buy into that. But, man, I couldn't tell the difference. I was like, it was like, rah, 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 rah. like, I couldn't get the. Uh. But I'm really impressed by you saying that these guys are great musicians and they've grown exponentially. Mm. Like, so you're hearing something different when you're listening to this than I'm hearing. And I would, I wish I had your ear. I wish I did. But for me, I was like, Neh. I was even like saying to myself at one point, maybe I should read the lyrics. 
Yeah. So I'm a little more prepared because I have no idea. This just sounds so loud. Like, you know, I don't know. I'm an old man now. I'm like, oh, those kids with their loud Christian music. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was one song he kept singing ass. And I'm like, why is this Christian man singing ass for? I thought sodomy made Jesus cry. <laughs> oh, I'm totally cutting that out of the episode because that's a terrible joke. Oh, my God. Sure that wasn't Ash. Oh, is that what they were saying? Possibly. It sounded like ass. Track seven, Ash. I couldn't tell you what it's about. Mm. I, yeah, I didn't have time to sit down and, and read all the lyrics and break it all apart. But they generally do have, you know, themes to all their albums and, you know, we'll base them on, you know, biblical themes. Yeah. And Jesus never said anything about sodomy. <laughs> no, he didn't. Yeah. It's just not in there, you know. Just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I, I, I really liked him. I was... Like I said, I was listening around, listening to the first album, the latest album, and, and just random stuff in between. And uh, God, they're good. The, uh, what's his name? Patrick Judge, the lead guitarist. Is, like I said, he's got so much better in the last 20 years. Well, he, he didn't join until like 2009. But uh, some of the, yeah, some of the solos, although it's pretty sp- sparse in solos in this album, what he does do is just phenomenal. Um, they are brilliant musicians. I'll um, take your word for it. Now, Daniel, what did you think of this album as our um, Christian podcasting guest? I love how he said, God, they're good. Like, they could probably use that, like, as, like, a pull quote, like, for the back of the album. Like, yeah. you know, as a Christian rock fan, just like, <laughs> God, they're good. Um, I, uh, I, played, I played it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was an album. <laughs> <laughs> that's like when I go see a play that my friends in and they're not good in it or I don't like the play and I'm like that was a play and you were in it yeah <laughs> like, I always say what an achievement because god it is very difficult to create a piece of art and it's also like I think for Christian artists it's very difficult to create something that is niche in the way of not mainstream Christian, but trying to reach a different audience so I give them so much credit for all of that and so it is an achievement um and it is like wow but at the same time i don't really identify or hear the same ear uh for that type of music in general Mm -hmm. so i don't know if i'm an accurate judge i could sit here and be like about it all day long but i know if i'm trying to sit there sometimes and play a musical for someone who's into like a death metal or they might not get my point of view so i can't really accurately rate it I would maybe listen to one song again, like put one song, you know, or use one song in like a film that I was making or something like that. I could see that happening. I would not say this is this is horrible. I'll never listen to it again for whatever reason. But I didn't really I did notice, though, to their, I guess, credit, like a positive thing. I didn't know they were a Christian band and I did get the message when they were saying certain things like bow down and things like that. It was like I was hearing it and I was like, this sounds a little Christian-y. So to their credit, I guess that that even unbeknownst to me, not even knowing that they were a Christian band, the vibe that I got off of it was a little worship heavy. So yeah, no, I can I can see that. Yeah, it's funny funny to say they did actually have a um they had a song off their first album was used in uh, Resident Evil uh, in the film. I'm just trying to figure out which one. See, that's exactly a great place to use something like this, especially when they're talking about like, save me or I need help or they, like, those are great things to have like in the background of those kind of movies. Um, I could see myself looking like being like, we need something like a Christian metal band, find someone, you know, like, and then fitting the bill for that. So they definitely sounded legit. It didn't sound like some garage band or something. It sounded like a legit, like produced, well-produced 
to get one of your songs, you know, into a, a movie soundtrack off your first album is a pretty good achievement too. Yeah. Major, yeah. I don't know. Like, there's been a lot of these screaming, unclean vocals and the soaring, clean vocals that have been palatable. But I don't know. I guess it was just that every song really did. It very much did, Evan, sound exactly like the one before it. <laughs> yeah. Hearing that they released two albums, like one with War and one with peace, it might've been better to call the album War and Peace and done like a war song, a peace song, a war song, a peace song. Cause I needed a break between some of the beat, some of the beats or whatever to sort of kind of break it up. So I can like not only differentiate between which the when that when a song was changing, but also just to get like a mood switch a little bit. Cause the vibe at that at full throttle, full thrash, full intensity straight through. I mean, I could see that for like, maybe like something like a road trip or a Coke binge, but I don't know about like, <laughs> You know, like, <laughs> I don't know about like, I was like folding my clothes on a Sunday yeah. in the sunlight, like when I, you know, when I normally listen to like Christian music or something and it wasn't the vibe. Peace really is um, a lot more, like I said, mate, laid back and the speed is cut down and a lot more clean vocals and like Aaron probably would have liked that album better. Definitely. <laughs> Well, I I don't close my mind off just because I don't like an album because the next album may be better. No, I I love this. As soon as I put it on, just from the first track, I was like, oh, these guys are really good. And it just got better. And I was headbanging around the bakery and loving it. Wow. Well, one of the problems I have is this, the drums. So many bands just do that same drum beat across the board. So that's when when someone like Primus comes in or Faith No More or what was the band we did the other week? Tool, even Tool with their drumming, that it makes them stand out a lot more with their polyrhythms and their math core. <laughs> math core, yeah. Yeah. Well, think again, you're picking some of the bands with some of the greatest drummers in the world as well you know yeah and Danny Carey and uh what was his name Tim Alexander you know they are brilliant drummers when I cook I listen to like Brazilian bossa nova you know yeah and it's like doesn't that all have the same like you know it's always like the same like thing because that is the style so they're they're right within their style like I think that they they definitely blend with with but but the bands that you're pulling out, like the Primus, the Tools, those are the ones that stand out because they have like oddity members. Like he's saying, like, I feel like when I hear like Primus is like when you hear them, you're like, that's Primus singing, you know what I mean? Singing the South Park theme song or whatever. You just know who, who, who it is when you hear them because they're like an iconic tone. They, they, yeah, they've got an identity. Whereas for all these bands to use that, even if it's standard, it, it dilutes their individuality across the board, across different bands. Yeah. Because if you were to put on this album and then another, I, I can't think of a band on the top of my head, Evan, you would be able to, that sounds the same. I wouldn't be able to pick which band is which. Yeah, there's a bit of August Burns Red in there, I suppose. Oh, that that's right. That's the other Christian band. Yeah, and they, they do sort of both sort of call themselves metalcore a little bit. August Burns Red are like 100% metalcore all the way through and all the songs sound metalcore. The thing that interests me about like a metalcore Christian band is like, isn't like the whole thing of metalcore dark, like the dark side? Like, isn't that like a big portion of what that music's all about? Yeah, pretty. <sighs> maybe the perception of it, but it, it's more the, the structure of the songs and, you know, the, the yeah. beats per minute. Well, I'm not even talking about the perception. I'm not I'm not a person who judges a book by its cover. I'm talking about like the shirts that I've seen, their merch, their posters, their album covers, their personas, everything from like Ozzy Osbourne eating a 
you know, whatever. Like, you know, it's like just the whole side of it, guar. Ah. Uh, like, you know, like the whole. Like, what a bad. <laughs> which is fun, by the way. Yeah, I, I saw them live. One of their last gigs. Who? Guar. G-W-A-R. And they have this thing where they have a blood cannon on stage and they literally spray the crowd with you know colored water oh they also have like a big puppet demon on stage in some shows where like 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 they'll take people audience and then they'll <laughs> yeah. get eaten by the demon and then i don't <laughs> even know what happens after that but like when what were they called war g-w-a-r yeah wow yeah. yeah very heavy i remember in high school my friend trying to like he loves them and he was trying to like get me into them and he's playing music for them, but the lyrics were so weird, you know? Like, I, I was just like, the, it is very violent. And I get that that's the energy that people want to like get out or like vibe out to, like, it, like is maybe stress relieving. I've always said that that's why, that's how I think I've learned about horror movies by participating in them and meeting horror fans. Like, how like people can sit in a horror movie and watch like this brutal thing happen and just cringe the whole time and be so scared and everything else. And then when it's over, they're like, ah, it's over. And it's almost like getting a full body massage for people. Like, because when they get back to reality, they're all the tenseness that they let out in the theater is gone. I get that art is, art is therapeutic and that there is some therapy in this, but everything about hardcore metal to me has that vibe the wearing of black the spiky jewelry the like you know the, all of the things that are traditionally and culturally of that scene have to do with things that are dark or spiky or painful or bloody or you know or macabre <laughs> yeah. and so it's interesting for me for like a christian man to want to and call themselves demon hunter and want to go and like you know sort of find the darkness in the light you know it seems like so uh, that idea is punk in itself it's just like okay you know one of the things that was always so funny is like i saw like a cartoon or something almost like one of those like new yorker cartoons or whatever where it was like a teen who had, pier who had piercings and like spiky hair and all this other stuff and then like there was another person with them and they're like you really want to piss off your parents go to church you know, it's like kind of <laughs> that's what I did, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. I at fifteen, I ran away from home and I became a born again Christian. Really? And within a year, I had joined the punk scene and I had a mohawk, piercings, and tattoos by sixteen years old. I got my first tattoo at fifteen, but wow, how many do you have? Oh, well, actually, I got two of them before I no three of them before I turned eighteen. Wow. I got the fourth one after I turned 18 and I haven't had one since and I'm 36. Bad kid. Bad, you're a rough kid. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I wasn't. I was because I'd been picked on and, you know, bashed and, and all that shit at school. Sure. I then I found solace in the church, but then I found even more solace in getting drunk at the pub as a 15 year old. <laughs> wow. Funnily enough, I'm clean. I got nothing. Haven't you? No, uh -uh. no. We are the yin and the yang. No, and no tattoos either. Haven't you? And I just got piercings last year for the first time. Like, so oh, wow. I got them once for a few months in seventh grade, but it didn't work out. I had one and it didn't work out. But other than that, I never been pierced and never had tattooed or anything. I was always like, oh, I'm an actor. I want to be like a clean slate. But then finally I was like, fuck it. I want an earring. I want to wear an earring. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> like, Why not? We used to do it at school ourselves. Like I did a stretcher in my ear and I did my belly at school. I know the exact kind of kid you were. Yeah. I know exactly who you were. 
Yeah. <laughs> I know who you were sitting with and rolling with. I know. <laughs> say no say no more. <laughs> I was a wimp. I don't know about a wimp. I was an absolute wimp. A wimp. Yeah, I was. I was, you know, like like I wasn't I wasn't getting into fights. Let's just say that. I was I think vulnerability is dope. I don't think you need to get into fights. I don't think no. fighting is the answer. No, not at all. I think being like the sweet vulnerable person is cool. Yeah, that that was me very much so. The tortured kid. Well, uh, that's very it, awesome. And now look, now you have an awesome podcast. I know. Anyways, on that note, I, it looks like the demon hunter has become the hunted. There it is. <laughs> there it is. And we'll go to an ad break. We're back in a moment with Thrush and Treasure. summer winter spring or fall the first ever musical theater sitcom where you go behind the scenes of the latest west end show the fossey forest ballet where's the important stuff aha a thousand pound a week ensemble rate ah that's what mamma mia likes starring philip joel and a west end cast featuring carrie alice darren day louise demon and oliver savile and more it all started in 1987 when I was a jobbing actress working in a diner. Yeah, it's just I, I had a really bad experience when I was touring Australia with a wombat. <gasps> Darling! How long have I been mentoring you? Three months? Two years. So her name is Henrietta. The horse. Yes. I've managed to secure you an audition for the biggest, most innovative, and the latest show to be going into the West End. Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Think more along the lines of Pant. Frozen. You can watch this episode for the price of a coffee. Simply go to www.thefussyforestbelly.com. Any and all profits go back to theatre charities, acting for others, and the Theatre's Trust. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll see a grown man in sparkly tights. Tight nights. Nice. Tight. G'day, you listen to Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron. That's Evan. And we are joined by the amazing Daniel Franzese. Am I saying that correctly? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's Franzese. Franzese. Zay. It's an A. It's an A sound. Yeah, that's what I said. Friends easy. No, you're still not saying it. <laughs> I'm saying it lazily. The mi- the middle syllable is an A sound. Try it again. I listened to you saying it yourself. Are you saying Franzisi? Is it you saying it in your accent? I don't even think it's right in your accent. No, it's not, is it? And yet if <laughs> I say it in Italian, I'll just be racist. So we'll just have to do without. <laughs> say it again. Oh, please. Nobody calls racism on Italians. They say whatever they want to say about us. I know. What's with that? What is with that? You know what it is? What's with that? Italians and Mexicans are like that. We just want to be included. We love it. We're like, yeah, you said us. <laughs> we don't care. Like I was actually talking the other day. I was passing in Florida, this place called Luigi's Italian Ices. And Luigi had crazy Einstein hair and like and like spirally eyes. I'm like, what the hell is this? Like if you tried to do that with like a Chinese food place, you know, it's like uh, you would never get away with it. But Italians, they're like, oh, we don't care. How good's the icy? Yeah. (laughs) I brought this up before on the show. I can't remember what guest it was, but it feels like that Italians and French don't get those protections from racism that other Mediterranean countries get. And I don't understand why not, because 
when we had a lot of Greek and Italian immigrants in Australia, they copped a hell of a lot of racism from people. Mm. When you don't have an accent and you're white, you can code switch. So that's essentially what it was. It's like we could like like maybe like my grandparents couldn't were got more racism than I did. You know, I know that I was called I was called the meatball by one of my teachers when I was in school, I, like a greasy meatball. I, there was times that I experienced things like that. My great grandfather, they told them we don't want any Italians like you living on this block. You can't move on this block. See what I mean? Like it. Yeah. So they've experienced things like that. But as soon as you could speak English and sound like everybody else and look white, then you could blend in. And that's what happened to my culture. My culture got whitewashed a lot. Yeah. You know, uh, it, Little Italy in New York used to be like eight blocks or 12 blocks. And now it's just like one block. Oh, really? Yeah. Damn. So it's just interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I find it interesting, too, because there is so much about racism. Goodness, that's, that's a shame. I, I wonder if it's a shame because I, I'm so proud about being Italian and I have so much Italian stuff that's infused in my comedy and my work and everything else I do. So I don't know how much of a shame it is because I'm American now and I'm exactly what my grandparents wanted to be. I am like a you know successful American who's still proud of my culture. So like maybe this was the dream, but like I do wish I still had like more of Little Italy around. I wish that the neighborhoods were still my neighborhood, you know, our neighborhoods, because the Italian neighborhood I grew up in now is all Russian and Chinese and everything just changes. So it's interesting. That's it. Well, speaking of very, very white, we'll move on to the musical because <laughs> we chose Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I chose this actually because, Daniel, you have uh, some interesting theories about Joseph. Yeah, I do, actually. I was listening on your Yes Jesus podcast or Yes Jesus. Jesus, if you're nasty, yeah. That's it. <laughs> so, Evan, you are the nasty one in this equation. So what did you think of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? Well, uh... Yeah, um, what was it? You sent me like three different versions for a start. And even you agreed they sound different. Oh, they're vastly different. I feel like the Donny Osmond one is the one that everybody knows because of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, again, I was, I was talking talking to my wife about the, the different versions and everything, and you bring up the, uh, the Jason Donovan, uh, was it 91? Now, he's an icon in Australia and UK. Yeah, and that's the one she knows. And you guys in America have no idea who Jason Donovan is, but to the rest of the world, he's like Brad Pitt, basically. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and, and I had the unfortunate experience of when I first put your playlist on, for some reason it was on shuffle. And so I listened to the whole damn thing on shuffle and it made no sense whatsoever. And then it started putting in, um, you know, Demon Hunter songs. I'm like, what? what? What's going on? Is it over? And then it goes back and, oh, God. Yeah, it was on shuffle, so I completely wasted, you know, a couple of hours. <laughs> anyway. Bugger. First listen through. Yeah, and then I, yeah, then I went and listened to each different iteration, you know, separately. And I ended up really digging the 1973 version. It's like the closer to the original fully fleshed out production. It's rock and roll. Oh, it's, it, Phil, how old was... Andrew Lloyd Webber, when he did that, probably about 20, because his first one was when he was 17, and this wasn't technically his first one. It was his second, but it's his first produced one. He's the same age as my mum. So however old my mum is, <laughs> she okay. was 36 and 85. Mm. Oh, God, she was my age um, when she had me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, to, to bust this out at 20 or around, you know, early 20s, Probably still in college. He was 20 when he made this song? Yeah, That's well, this, like I said, his, his first musical 
that he wrote with Tim Rice. He was 17 when he did that, but that didn't get fully staged until about 2005. And like it got shelved for fucking 30 years. That was The Frogs? That's The Likes of Us. Likes of Us, yeah. Oh, the likes. oh no, The Frogs is the Seinheim one that was from when he was yes. shown, sorry. Yes, and Nathan Lane did that um, on Broadway. But yeah, listening through the 73 one, it's... Oh, it's vastly superior to the 91. I don't know what the hell happened to 91. Money. They were female voices doing the male songs, and it was just all over the place. That doesn't matter. No, it's just that's how vastly different it is. Now, the thing is, it's a very male-heavy show, mm. so to make the narrator a female is probably a smarter decision. But, yeah, they are two completely different things, really. But, yeah, I really dug the um, the 973 version. It was just so clever. He manages out of the blocks, if this is your first freaking staged public show, and he manages to nail so many different genres all the way through it. You know, there's, there's rock and roll song, there's Western, there's an, like a Charleston-type song, there's, there's a Calypso song, there's 1970s go-go dancer songs, just... It's pastiche. Yeah, there's even like a Middle Eastern sounding. I guess that's what someone who lived in England in their 20s in 1973 thought Middle Eastern music sounded like, but he still, he had a crack at it. Yeah, it's really freaking clever. Just It's just coming out as a resume going, I can write for any genre you want. Let You know, it's showing off nearly. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I didn't think you would like this. Yeah, I like, yeah, I loved it. The, well, I, mean, I loved it, but really? it... It told the story and I wasn't really, I wasn't familiar with the story. You know, I'm not a Bible person, so I don't know the Bible stories. Uh, only, only the really, you know, mainstream popular ones. But uh, yeah, it told the story sort of beginning to end and had a moral and, you know, just like your yeah, traditional Bible stories do. There were some really cool songs in here. Um, you know, like One More Angel in Heaven, a lot of comedy in there. Oh, yeah, that's good. Although it's, you know, it's a sad song, I suppose, but it's sung in such a, you know, fun way. God, uh, I get Coat of Many Colours stuck in my head. Can you name all the colours? Yeah, it was all of them, as far as I know. Red and red and orange and green There's and pink blue. pink and yellow and green and blue. and <laughs> Yeah, and I think the 91 version expanded on that and they just kept going. And there's like, and there's ochre and there's aqua and there's, you know, just and russet and peach <laughs> yeah, and yeah. ruby and olive and violet and fawn. And... Azure was the first time I heard that term when I looked look up the color azure, like when I was listening to Joseph. Is that azure? Is that what I call azure? Yeah. Azure, yeah. I call it azure, yeah. You, you're probably saying it right. You're saying it correct. No, I know for years I said cayenne, but apparently it's cyan. That one is cyan, yeah. Yes. But I think azure yeah. might be correct. No one told me. So, <laughs> And only just recently I found out it's Chick-fil-A, not Chick-fil-A. <laughs> So <laughs> I'd never heard it. That's all. I'd never, I'd only ever seen it written. Well, even their mascots are literate. So it's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. That's it. <laughs> but yeah, a- again, he was managing to throw in like every genre. There's the Benjamin Calypso, bloody Song of the King, you know, do- done as an Elvis song. And then it wasn't until, you know, watching the bloody pro shot and the, uh, and the original like 35 minute production from BBC. I watched that. Oh, I want to watch that. And he's sitting there in a, in a bloody Elvis suit as well. It's like, oh, he really leaned into it. He leaned all the way in. Went, yeah, it's not just, it's not just, uh, you know, borrowing the style of. It's like, no, that's that's an Elvis song. Yeah. In 1972, I think it was, Granada Television at the UK filmed the, I think it was the original workshop cast or whoever it was that did the 35-minute version. So it's that same cast from the Joseph Consortium CD. Yeah, and so it's 
staged. It's just like the film version, but shorter and and just a bit different and obviously less fancy because it's the 70s and the music's different. <laughs> yeah, it is so very 70s. It's very 70s, isn't it? Yeah, but I love the yeah. dancing in it, the choreography in it is wonderful. Yeah. No, I really didn't think he would like this. I, I, said I dug it by about how clever he's being so early on in his career. It just all the way through made me laugh, just nailing all these different genres. Although, like I said, the first the first listen through, I did come away going, what the hell did I just listen to? Um, yeah. And it was after a couple of listens that you really get the hang of it. And yeah, it takes a couple to get acclimatized to it. But yeah, again, it's one of those ones, the more you listen to it, the funnier it gets just musically. Yeah, he's, he is very clever. You can see why Andrew Lloyd Webber is Andrew Lloyd Webber. Very, very cool. This is the first musical that I know of in musical history that had a mega mix at the end. <laughs> I think it's a spectacular ending as a performer, especially like to do all of those numbers and to do an entire show and then to have to do the most energetic show at the end must have been so grueling and exhausting. It's like uh, like a, a feat of athleticism and performance like that, you know, wasn't really called upon for many people to do. So that ca- that was an extraordinary cast of performers to be able to accomplish that. I think I, I do think that then everyone started doing it. Then there was a Grease mega mix, and like in the revival of Grease did it, and then all these things started doing mega mix. It was like a mega mix thing for a while, and then all the way to I think Mamma Mia has it. Oh really? Some productions do mega mix. <laughs> you hate it. <laughs> what have you got against it? You know, it's it's basically like reprising every song. You know. Also, it gives everybody a starring moment in the end. It does, but it's like my criticism from the Super Bowl halftime act recently that it was just song, 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 song. There was no flow. Those songs didn't feed into each other and lead into each other. That's what annoys me about it. But just before we get on to your thoughts about Joseph, Daniel, I just got a few notes here. Now, the 1999 Pro Shot, for anyone listening to this, Go put it on and look out for the part where they sell Joseph. And you will see that it says sold to be a slave right as the camera shows two little non-white girls. Well, they're they're two little black girls. You do not see anybody of colour through that whole time until that one shot. (laughs) And I saw that and I'm like, whoa. The line is repeated twice while these two little girls are being shown thought that was a little bit inappropriate so that happened uh okay now part of this with the whole updating of the music and stuff remember in the 70s and the 80s it was done a hell of a lot in high schools right because it was Mm. made widely available for them as even i think before broadway it was being done in high schools. so then by the time 1991 comes around a lot of those students would have kids and so they've taken them along to see that show they did in school but because it was the early 90s it was the 80s it was the pop explosion and that's what they did they turned it into that pop sound so i was living in brooklyn at the time because i was a kid but like when that was when that was happening and angelo weber is the first composer to for a musical to have a tv commercial for cats like that's why cats and chorus line ran so long because they were running it they both were the first ones to have commercials and it became like a thing that they even did the audience reactions saturday night live made fun of it at one point but when they come out and the lady goes i loved it I loved Cats, like, and she's like this old New Yorker lady. Oh, yeah. And then they did it for all of his other musicals. There's an iconic one for Grand Hotel where the woman's like, I loved her, I'm going to buy tickets and I'll be back next week or something like that. And yeah, yeah. if you <laughs> look on Twitter, people will spread that all the time. She's <laughs> iconic, that, that woman. 
there was really funny. Saturday Night Live did a sketch called uh, with John Lovitz where they made him a hypnotist on Broadway, and everyone came out and had the same quote. They were like, "I loved it. It was much better than Cats. I'm going to see it again and again." <laughs> and they're like, "So and so of the Times raised loved it better than Cats." Like it was just like they all were brainwashed. But I think that had a big thing to do with it because people needed to see something. Joseph has that father or something or whatever. They had to create like a mega mix to put it on the TV commercial. Like they had to show something that looked bigger than life, you know, so people wanted to go. And I think that it was created for that purpose, like uh, to serve the, the, the publicity of it. Yeah. And also to, by putting any dream will do at the start and then having a reprise at the end, it's you're playing off that. Oh, this is the big song that everyone loves, which funnily enough, I sang any dream will do for my very, very first audition of Bugsy Malone. And I somehow got in. I don't know how I it was my first ever audition and there was 40 other kids in the room. You guys did Bugsy Malone? Bugsy Malone. Yep. So I was a gangster. As a stage production? Yep, as a musical. That's cool. Yeah, it was awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, as you're saying about the the school productions, uh, I did read somewhere that they've counted roughly over the years, like 20,000 different requests to do it in schools. You know, it's been done so much. Yeah. Yeah. So many children have grown up doing it at school. Yeah. I didn't say did it the year before I started high school, but I did see someone else's high school production of it. However, I... <laughs> think that the Joseph character is incredibly dull. He's a nothing character. He really is. Everyone else around him is the interesting character. He's just sort of like, oh, I can tell dreams. However, on that, he's got this dream coat. It is there in the title, but his brothers take the coat off him and rub blub on it and then give it to the father. But then Joseph goes along and gets picked up by um, Popita, or however you pronounce his name, and then the pharaoh or whatever, and... He's still interpreting dreams, but he doesn't have the coat. So doesn't need the coat. It's inside him. But it's a dream coat. I know. So therefore, it's not a dream coat. He could already interpret dreams. He just wanted a fancy coat. So he no, looked good while gotta... he did that. Yeah. <laughs> so the title is false advertising there. Oh, true. But no, I, I, I do think he's there's no development at all to this character. Now, last week, Evan, you went on about narrators and the story. If you need a narrator, the story is not good enough. However, I beg to differ. Joseph, the narrator here, works. Oh, yeah, it does. Rocky Horror, criminologist, Into the Woods, very iconic narrator there. Little Shop of Horrors, you've got Renette Chiffon and Crystal, very, very iconic narrators there. Evita, Che, amazing. And Cabaret with the MC. So they are some examples prove to you that narrators work in musicals because they're not there and to... Jersey Shore's like with the with the random sluts. Well, there you go. Three random sluts took you through the whole story. The most iconic narrators, yeah. Like, <laughs> where else are you going to get sluts telling your story, Evan? And you want a badmouth narrators? They're there to be a framing device, right? They're there to give the audience a breather between scenes, but also to keep you in the story. They're not there to say what is happening on the stage, which is what you guys were accusing him of, or the narrator of last time. They're there to fill in the gaps between scenes. Not only that, they're genderless, colorless, ageless castings, and they're a conduit for the audience to bring up into the story so i think you were a little bit hard on the raiders last week but also film and tv nightmare before christmas the star wars scroll that's a narration texas chainsaw massacre that has narration by john larroquette but you didn't know that and the wonder years <laughs> drop the mic <laughs> and now i've lost my pen yeah wonder wonder years hold 
whole thing was that was narrated. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So Ron Howard did that narration. Are you referring to Venice? Yes. Yeah. Well, that was the fact that the narrator was rapping and I, it just didn't work. But then he's continued on about it, and I had a thought of, I think. I'm this... not against narrators. Well, you sounded like it. Daniel Stern did the Wonder Years narration. Really? Yeah. I thought Ron Howard did it. I believe. Evan's looking it up. I heard... Yep, spot on. Daniel Stern. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. What did Ron Howard narrate? Oh, Arrested Development. Did Daniel Stern? Oh, okay. Well, either way, Arrested Development, Ron Howard narration right there. So thank you. There's an, another example I can add. <laughs> I feel like Daniel Stern also narrated uh, Stand By Me. Oh, one of the, another greatest film of all time. And what else did Ron Howard narrate? The director commentary on Backdraft. <laughs> oh, did he? Oh, I didn't see that one. Sorry. <laughs> but speaking of David A's, funnily enough, I have Bully on David A. Oh. Not too many people would have that, I'm sure. I don't know. Many people. Um, I've obviously got Mean Girls, but I've also got the two disc War of the Worlds. And this officially, out of all the guests we have had on the show, this makes you my most DVD'd guest yet with three. Oh, look at that. You don't have Party Monster? No. Oh, interview over. Oh, I thought you would. I've never seen it. Oh, really? I want to. I want to, but... I, I think just... you'd like it. Yeah, I, I probably will. I, I do know the story. Sure. So you liked this, Evan. Yeah. Weird. Well, like I said, I like the 73 version way more than the 91 version. Yeah, they just changed it so much. They did. It was it was a completely different musical. But it, yeah, it's really impressive for someone of that young to just nail so many genres and you know, write in just to prove you can write every different song. And catchy. And catchy, yeah. You come away you with different songs getting stuck in your head yeah he's just showing off really yeah it's excellent i could you know you can see why it's why it's so popular and why it's been done so much uh it's it's really easy to see actually the and again the recording i was really impressed with the recording in in the 70s was just yeah it just sounds bigger and cleaner better produced they should have just redone it instead of reimagined it that's why I was wondering, like, did Andrew Lloyd Webber sit down 20 years later and go, I've got a different idea, and then just done something else? Maybe. Maybe. He'd be well within his right to do that, you know? Yeah, I couldn't find any information on it, like, what happened. But, yeah, no, it's weird. They, they just go, no, it's just the 91 revival, and off they went. It's a good solid three, three and a half. I'll take the three and a half. Yeah, that's it's, yeah I'd go and see it if it was came to town. Oh, apparently bloody yeah. Jason Donovan is back in it. He's yeah, playing play the, the pharaoh. pharaoh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh well, before COVID shut it down. It was just on. And it's back now. It was. And then it closed and it's about to tour. So Lindsay Haitley, I think that's her pronounce her name. She's the narrator in it. She was Carrie in Carrie the musical that was originally the big bomb. But Daniel, were you a fan of this musical before we forced you to listen to it? Um yeah. Yeah. I like it. It's not one of my very, very, very favorites, but I do like it. And I'm more of a fan of Carrie. (laughs) I I did enjoy it when I was in college a lot. And then I kind of like thought it was cheesy for many years. And then I revisited it again as I started to become more obsessed with the actual story of Joseph and then saw it in a different light again, you know, and now I appreciate it for all its different things. And I have a new appreciation today, knowing he was so young when he made it. That's even more impressive. Yeah. But I, I was listening to one of your podcast episodes and you were talking about your theories on Joseph himself. Uh, I'll let you. Yeah, see, I, the whole the, the story of Joseph is interesting. One of the things I do not like about the musical is how it changes the story. Like, you know, things that are do things that sort of like 
when something's as iconic as Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, it then takes the story to being a dreamcoat. Like I can't even, when I'm trying to tell someone about Joseph in the Bible, I always sing dreamcoat myself, like when I'm ever describing it, because it's become synonymous with the actual story. And you have a lot of responsibility when you're telling something, especially like a biblical story or a real story in general or whatever, uh, or things that people perceive to be real. And then like you're changing it. But that's how Hollywood is, right? Yeah. You mentioned the connection between the coat being a dream coat and it not being a coat. And then in the musical, especially when he loses the coat, he's still able to interpret dreams. In the Bible, it's not the coat that gives him any kind of power whatsoever. Like, that's not even a part of it at all. In the Bible, and also in the Book of Enoch, which is considered like an almanac of the time and considered like a, a book that was written around the same time that has some details that we don't have in the Bible about some of the things. When they describe Joseph, they describe him as hairless and sensitive. So they make a big deal about hair in the Bible, like with Samson and everything else and hair eating, um, equaling ma uh, masculinity. And Joseph didn't have a beard at that time. A lot of men had beards. And uh, what's interesting about that is Joseph was uh, Jacob's favorite. And they even say it in the musical, it was his favorite son. Um, he really did love him. And when he goes out one time, he comes home with this garment, we'll call it, okay? Now in 46 AD, 48 AD, like around then, in the, in the, uh, the translation of the Bible from then, from like just less than 50 years after Christ's death, it's, it's written in the Bible as a ketanet pasim. That's what they call this garment, a ketanet pasim. And the ketanet, the word ketanet pasim only comes up one other place in the Bible, and that is at Tamar's wedding. So it's, uh, and it is a virginal princess dress that a father gives to a daughter on her wedding day. So the garment that Joseph wore was a ketanet pasim. It was a long robe. It's almost just as it's depicted. It's, it was like a long, like, robe that was kind of dressy at the bottom. And it was rainbow, which so many textiles. And Jacob knew that Joseph would like this. So here's Joseph, who is a hairless, sensitive young boy, favorite of a father, who's wearing a rainbow garment intended for a wedding garment for a princess. Okay? And he comes out to give a message to the field to his brothers that are all busting their ass farming and working in the field. And here comes Joseph in her dress. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's why Joseph got his ass kicked. And I, that's why the brothers wanted to kick his ass. And I think that they frame it in the musical. They frame it in a lot of uh, retellings of the Bible story that the brothers were jealous of the coat. They were like, the dad got you this beautiful coat. It's so gorgeous. But if it was jealous, why did it get ripped up and poured blood on? Like someone would have walked away with the coat. Mm. It, was, it was the favoritism. It was the favoritism. And potentially Joseph could be a genderqueer person. I mean, there are no white people really in the Bible. So Joseph could technically be a, a trans person of color. And I think that there's a lot of potential perspectives that could be used on this story to give a lot of people comfort and validity in the eyes of God. And it's just never been used that way, especially in the Catholic Church. And I feel like not telling that perspective on this story does a disservice to the Bible. Because historically accurate in language, a ketan and pasim is a dress. 
So I think that that's an interesting thing about this story that always got me. The fact that it's rainbow, the fact that Joseph still was able to go interpret dreams for the king and save his own family in the end, ultimately, because they all ended up being saved by him. So it's just an interesting thing that is something that we've talked about in the podcast. We have a section on Yash Jesus called Baked Bible Stories, where we smoke a joint each and then we go through like a weird Bible story (laughs) and like break it down. (laughs) (laughs) Like we don't really call it Bible study because we are wondering we call it bible wondering because we don't know and we're not preachers we're not teachers we're not scholars we're like just like you know two stoner gay sinners that are like trying to figure it out like but the whole thing is like this it's an interesting perspective like there's so many people who are genderqueer who now get comfort from hearing this version of the tale and i think that bible is meant to be a reflective text you look into it inward towards you and we've been we've relied on a lot of people t- retelling the story or on picking up our historical or biblical references from pop culture you know some people only know of king herod from jesus christ superstar you know it's just how it happens he tried to build a wall yeah. he was the original trump he tried to build a wall <laughs> Precisely. God. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's awesome that even in the musical version, how big the coat is, it looks like a giant dress, like that it's got like a little bit of that vibe to it. But I, I wish that everybody knew that story based off of the earliest translation. See, the way you describe it all there makes him sound so much more interesting than he is in this musical where he's kind of just wandering around going, Ugh. Well, because when you whitewash something and you straightwash something, yeah, it's going to lose all of its flavor and interest and story like that's one of my problems with it talking about how boring the character of joseph is in the play joseph is so much more intriguing and interesting and dynamic as potentially like a sensitive little vulnerable gender queer boy whose dad loved him it was like his only daughter you know <laughs> like he, you know what i mean he was like i love you because you're the sweetest you're the one that does this and you're the one that does that and you're gonna love this colorful dress you you appreciate rainbows the boys are pissing and shitting everywhere they don't care you know that's the story that i see when i see the bible is joseph being like this sensitive little boy who you know if we knew what gender neutrality was back in the day might might be trans but instead is like the sensitive like genderqueer asexual maybe like like sweet little being, you know, with long hair and yes, father, I'll cook for everyone and I'll do you know, like, you know, and I'll interpret dreams and like and make star catcher. I don't know what he did, but my whole point is just like the fact that these guys are all busting their ass out in the field and there's all these brothers and they're all the same and it's like a fraternity, you know, even the youngest brother who wasn't wasn't really at fault when all of this went down wasn't one of the brothers that was there to like hurt him. He was too little. Benjamin. Yeah, Benjamin. You know, he met he messes with him. He puts the he puts the thing inside him and he says he stole from here and he like he like messes with him because he's still not re- he doesn't have a vengeance. He's a sweet, sensitive soul, you know, um, and God was speaking to him because he was able to like, I mean, pretty much save everyone by knowing that there was going to be a feast and a famine. You know, he like they knew to save all the food and he was able to feed his family and all this other stuff like uh, ended up being a hero in the end. And for there to be a possibility, like even an inkling, even just like a little rumor of a genderqueer or a trans person in the Bible as a hero and it not even being mentioned or touched upon or being buried for centuries. It just seems like the opportune time to talk about it is in a musical. And I feel like that's a missed opportunity here. Instead, Joseph is really boring and is the most, I mean, and I love him and I'm not trying to diss him at all, but the most boring American we got is Donny Osmond. Like with like, you know, Donny Os- the Osmond single-handedly are the reason 
why half the UK wanted to have more natural dental work because they were just chiclet teeth, fake American Republican. Like, like you want to be anti that, like at that time. As much as I do, I mean, I really still think Dosmans are a cute celebrity family or whatever in history. Like, you know, I don't. I still think like, um, man, like you couldn't have picked somebody with like a little bit of like, I would have loved to seen like a young Raul Julia in that role or something like, you know, somebody who maybe had like a little flavor in them, somebody who maybe who knows Omar Sharif, I don't know, like, I don't know, as the as in it, you know, like somebody who might have had a little bit more darker blood, because I think that that adds something to everything too. like, it was whitewashed, it was straight washed. It was hetero washed. It was like, and I think that for a musical with rainbows in it and a strictly male cast, like I want to see more gayness. Like I just, especially when it calls for it, you know. And I, yeah. I kind of find it hard to imagine that someone as smart and as young and as queer as Andrew Lloyd Webber wouldn't have. You know, he's straight, right? He's straight. He's straight. Is he straight? Yeah. Oh well, then that makes more sense. I always thought he was gay. No, he was married to Sam Brightman. Oh, was he married to Sarah Brightman? Yeah. Oh my God, I think I did know that, and I forgot that. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> After on Phantom, but he, he certainly comes across as a, a very well-educated guy, and yeah, know, writing these in college. So I'm sure he would have done some done some research into the story. I can't believe I forgot he was married to Sarah Brightman. Yeah, I guess I'm like rusty on my Andrew Lloyd Webber trivia. <laughs> That's all right. But if you look at the casting of like like the original BBC one, again, it is all very oh, white, yeah. but, you know, Joseph himself is, is you know, a good couple of inches taller than everyone, more handsome than everyone, has the nicest hair. Wow, well, that's child catcher hair. You know, the fittest body. Did you see his freaking, he's at like 2% body fat. He is so fit. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> I would be interested in seeing Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dreamcoat with like, with MJ Rodriguez, you know, like, do you know, you know what I mean? From Pose, like, okay, yeah, or somebody yeah, yeah. who, like, some, yeah, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like somebody who's got, like, played more like on an androgyny tip, you know, even though she is a woman of trans experience, but played more in like that neutral place, like, like the character, like, it'd be interesting. It would be interesting if it was Joe and the Dreamcoat and they did like an updated version. But do, do they need to change that? Or I see, I think um, MJ, you wouldn't know who we're talking about, Evan. Her name is MJ Rodriguez. She's a trans actress. She could just play Joseph as Joseph and still you call it a boy because when I sit in that audience, I'm not sitting there going, oh, I'm watching MJ on stage. I'm sitting there watching Joseph on stage. Does that make sense? So I think it would do more for the cause to not. Yeah, I I, I could see that. I was saying I, I was I was making sort of an assumption that we're still trying to do this for a commercial aspect and like, you know, the, the way traditional Angela Weber productions yeah. are done. I, that was like my sort of like uh, cheeky take on that but i agree with you you don't need to change anything I, I but i do think it could be interesting like i just feel like somebody with naturally long hair that lives their own life in some sort of a of a, of a different gender experience and heteronormative and but then can play someone who's more of a, on the neutrality scale you know and I, I that's what i would really like to see i think it could be beautiful and but i don't know if this is the show that's going to accomplish that maybe there needs to be another musical about that you know that maybe like a, like a whole nother musical um they're actually doing, um, I don't know the, uh, I can look up the name of it, but they're actually doing a musical about, the, there's a, lo a gay love story in the Bible, uh, perspective on a gay love story in the Bible, but which I believe is just blatantly gay between David and Jonathan. And like, they're doing a musical about their gay love and it's it's uh, going to be in Boston. It's like like a pre-Broadway tryout right now and it looks stat it looks so beautiful. Like I actually cried during the trailer. It's just so intense. So I think that maybe we are coming to this point you know, back in Hollywood is kind of stuck right now. 
like everything's superhero, superhero. They're just like regurgitating stuff that they already know that works. I feel like ever since 9-11, when America needed to feel like America again or not feel as vulnerable, they started going back to all this comfort stuff, which led us to where we are now, where everything is. I mean, even I bought Gatorade the other day and it came in the can. It came in in the 80s. Everything's like a throwback because nostalgia is comfort. Mm -hmm. Sentimentality sucks. Sorry, but <laughs> no. But I, you but, know, for, for people with trauma, I think nostalgia is really valuable because it's it's something that is memorable, very, that yeah. feels good, that can't be altered. Like you can't change the past. So so when you when you have trauma and you think of something that gives you happy feelings from when you're a kid or whatever, and you go like your genie pillow behind you. Well, I got that as a thirty-year-old, actually, Daniel. <laughs> but I do have something up here that I've had since I was a ten-year-old. My Power Rangers ring. Oh, for God's sake! Yeah, there you go. You that's yours from when you're ten. Yeah, something like that. I know. I got there was all of them, but this is the only surviving one. And I've got actually speaking of Aladdin, I've got Aladdin Happy Meal toys still from 1991 or 1992. Oh, that's cool. I do have a few things, but that I got as a 30-year-old at Disneyland <laughs> and the T-shirt at the same time. We are having this conversation the other day because I, I noticed, I you know, looked up what, what new movies are out. It's like, oh, there's a new Texas Chainsaw Massacre and there's a new Scream. I watched that. I, I don't I don't want to know about the Scream. I will watch that soon. But that Texas Chainsaw Massacre fucking sucked. <laughs> the, the point was, and, and my wife sort of immediately goes, where are the new good movies that aren't remakes or Marvel? You've got they they are out there. I'm not saying they're not, but you've got to look for them. Well, the last time Hollywood went through this trouble, Bible stories pulled them out of it. And her and Bible stories were the ones that Hollywood started making these big budget Bible movies. And so who knows? Maybe it's maybe like there'll be a wave of these queer stories that might do the same. Just queer and people of color stories are perspectives on stories that we've heard so many times one way. And we get to hear them in like a different way now. Like I think that's interesting. To me, I don't mind them making a tons of of Texas Chainsaw Massacres. It's or or Ghostbusters or whatever. Cause to me it's like it's like Romeo and Juliet yet make them again and again and again and it only expands the universe like just make them all make bad ones make good ones you know like i want to th that's fun to me like to see different things but um we do need some new things and i hope that some of those uh new things are a little less whitewashed what's that what are you pointing to <laughs> it's, it's the plug time yeah that's that's original an original idea and there you go this yeah Anyways, there's some strong female characters <laughs> and the humans are not. Let's just say you don't, you, no one wants to be represented in these novels because the humans are not good. So that's all I need to say. So if anyone complains that they're not represented and I'm like, do you really want to be represented in this? I mean, I was happy that the Babadook might be gay. It's just representation matters in here. <laughs> he does look a, a little bit like that. I thought that S.C. Davis's performance in that was fucking stellar. Anyways, okay, so I think we can zip the jacket up. Really? Oh, whatever, Evan, you do better. <laughs> We're going to throw to an ad break. Oh, I don't think they had zips in 49 AD. Well, and they didn't have watches in ancient Mesopotamia, but did that stop the Eternals from going, what's the time? It's ancient Mesopotamia for crying out loud. You should be going, where's the sundial? Never gonna let that go. No, I'm not. G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www 
thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. After barely three hours of light sleep, Toniston Turnbull slowly opens his eyes, his body feeling heavier than it ever has before. Not from extra weight, from tiredness and stress. Polly sighs in the shadows behind him, the flame of the nearest barbed wire tiki torch tower having died down, but not out, while Toniston napped. Are you awake? Toniston whispers. Oh, how can I sleep in this place? Polly moans, turning onto her side and facing Toniston, who stays on his back, imagining obscure animal-esque shapes in the rusted tin roof above them, shadows faintly formed by the nearest dying torches. We need to work out a way to get out of here, Toniston states the obvious. He whispers, despite the fact the nearest shacks to their own are several metres away, and the occupants presumably asleep as most prisoners seem to be. How? There's no fence to squeeze through, or even climb, Polly replies, sitting up in bed and then stretching out her sore arms. The hairs stand on end from the slight chill in the air. I don't know, but I think the whole fighting thing is a distraction. You mean, to distract the other prisoners when new ones arrive? No, I, I think that was just bad timing. Didn't you notice? Toniston goes on to explain his theory. That fight happened, everybody gathered around. I didn't see one person who wasn't watching, and then when I vomited, the only gate in this place closed shut. What are you trying to say? I think something happened when everyone's back was turned. Like what? whispers Polly, her voice breaking up in fear. I don't know. That's what we've got to find out. Toniston's brain starts working overtime, but it's strange that nobody seems to want to leave. They seem almost happy. Definitely content. So, when's the next one of those stupid beatdowns? Toniston can't help but think Polly looks tough, almost evil in the shadows as she asks, I don't know, Toniston begins, but both teenagers are distracted by a crumbling noise in the distance. Hopping out of bed, Toniston joins Polly on her own equally uncomfortable one. Spotting a large white package hovering close to the cave ceiling, behind it a shadowy figure. The package is lowered down, causing the teenagers themselves to lower as well, hoping not to be spotted by whom, or what, may be operating this obscure crane. Over a long, slow descent, the package is dropped to the ground. Polly keeps her eyes on it, but Toniston looks up immediately, spotting a large black shadow scurry away to God only knows where. Come, he whispers, as he quietly hops off her bed, slipping into his docks with bare feet. Polly follows his lead. Careful to keep watch on all directions, the teenagers swiftly sneak over to the white package, their hearts beating an almost tribal jam in perfect harmony, and stopping in their tracks as the sudden realisation of what lies before them sinks in. A woman, seemingly in her early twenties, wrapped up in bandages from the neck down. No, not bandages. Is that spiderweb? Polly asks, completely mortified at the prospect. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo!
All right, we're back with Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Evan, and we are joined by Daniel Franzese. I did it again where I didn't quite say it properly. Like, I know it's the say. No, you said it right. Because I can even prove. That one was right. I can prove that I know how it's said right. It says Franzese do, Franzese don't. That was what I would call your bio musical if they were to make a musical about your life. So that's my question. What would you call a musical about your life? Uh, the macaroni rascal. The macaroni rascal. Okay. Well, the other one was yes, Francesus. But I, I, I like Francesi do, Francesi don't. Okay. <laughs> Francesi do, Francesi don't. Yeah, it's kind of like wax on, wax off. Friends say he do, friends says he don't. Yeah. RuPaul told me that you can help people say it by saying, like, AC, you know, you say AC for air conditioner. We say, like, I don't have my own AC. I have to use my friend's AC. Friends AC nice yeah well there we go well speaking of rupaul because i do have a question about that as i mentioned you were part of one of the most awkward moments now could you guys hear them arguing before you went in or were you none the wiser no we we got to look through the mirror and we looked through the mirror and we got to watch everybody and everybody was chill and getting ready and then we did the challenge and then afterwards, they were like, hold on, wait a second. And they made us wait before we went in. They were like, you can't go in right now. And they were like, wait. And we were like, okay. Oh. And they're like, okay, now go in. They wanted to wait till the fight subsided. You know, there was an episode I remember, I think it was in season two or, or three, where Dita Von Tease came to come surprise the girls backstage. And she goes backstage and they were in a fight and, they, and then she had to leave. So they never met her. Like she was just backstage like while they were fighting. I think that's so funny. <laughs> and it happened recently with, um, was it Taraji P. Henson? Or was someone just from this current season? Oh, really? Yeah. Um, who was it? No, it wasn't Lizzo. T.S. Madison? T.S. Madison. Yes, yeah, she walked in. I think there was an argument on. But it was two weeks in a row. That's their time to argue, and there isn't a lot of time to do that. So it's going to happen again, I'm sure. Yeah. They did. It was really awkward for us, though, because we didn't know. You know, it wasn't until we watched it that everyone was like, do these people have timing? Yeah. Like, and they were like all coming for us and stuff. And we were like, I didn't even know like what was going on. Yeah. I, I was very uncomfortable for you both. Also, I felt like I gave them really good advice backstage. Like I told them a couple, of, I don't really remember exactly what it was, but I told them a couple of really good things and gave them a really good pep talk and they cut all that out and just made it look like we were back there just to say hi. Like, oh, bugger. you know, yeah, been good to leave it in because a lot of what, you know, Rue says to them and, and even the discussions they have, the younger audience is listening and they're taking it in. I think you're also forgetting that there was a queen that they were editing out. Oh, that's true. Oh, yeah, you were in that season, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, we won't go there. So a lot of that got changed because of that, too. They did such a great job that it, she was still involved, but she wasn't as... I mean, because honestly, I'm not really sure, but just from my assumption from being there, I feel like she would have been in the top. Yeah, she got to the final. She was really like dynamic on the show and all that was cut out. They didn't want to like ruin anybody else's responses or things that they said to her or spoke to her, but they cut out anything that might've put her in a good light, you know? I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Oh, there was a contestant <laughs> kicked out right as the season started. So it had already been filmed. They were just, they announced the cast, they were doing interviews and things like that. And then a couple accusers came forward and she kind of got me too'd. Yeah. Oh, okay. And like- Admitted it. Admitted it. Owned up. And it was actually like really sorted and twisted because she was like catfishing someone. It was a really big thing, but like- It was strange. 
It was strange. Yeah, she was pretending to be, I don't know. The casting it, so, director. But, but uh, they did a really amazing job at saying, you know, instead of canceling the whole season, you know, because she made it really far, they were like, we're going to honor all the other Queen's hard work and all the production's hard work, and we're still going to air this year, but we're going to try to edit her out as much as possible, and she's disqualified. She won't be in the finale or the reunion. Right. So when they did that, whole episodes had to be restructured right away before they aired. It was literally airing the next day. So they were working. And I mean, they got an Emmy for that season. And I think they really deserved it because I, I couldn't believe how much they made it okay that to cut a whole contestant out of a competition that's been there every day in the background, you know? Mm. The way they did it was really classy. Yeah, especially a favorite. Now, Evan has never seen an episode of Dry Grace, but many of our guests have come on and has been brought up by either me or them. So what season should a cisgendered hetero man start off? I think season six. You think season six? Well, that's a, that's a good idea because I've got the Australian in that one. Yeah. Who, who would know who the Australian is? But we, we shouldn't spoil that. Right. And then also the winner is really, is really a dynamic winner. And yeah. then Laganja's entrance. And, you know, I think there's a lot of things there. And the Untucked is very good. Untucked is, the, basically the show is an hour and a half. The first hour is the competition. And then the half hour afterwards is what happened in between each moment backstage. That's And that, it's really most of like what the fandom's about is all of that because if the fandom's about the stats of who won everything because it's kind of like gay sports <laughs> and then the drama backstage you get like so it's a soap opera and a sport in one thing it's yeah. like really juicy so Ru- rupaul's drag race is gay sports that's that's a great way to put it it's it is it's the like olympics of drag yeah and it's a race they only have three days for each week that we watch like so it's like a very exhausting grueling fun race yeah what I like to consider it is like a cheeseburger because a hamburger or cheeseburger is all four food groups in one. It is the ultimate meal. You've got your bread, you've got your meat, you've got your salads, your veggies, and you've got your dairy. Shut up, Evan. Stop laughing at me. Charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. So you get everything in Drag Race. You get creative challenges. You get acting challenges. You get singing <laughs> Uh, they have to do a design challenge. Yeah, see, I, I'm unaware of the entire concept. I, 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 I've heard of RuPaul, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's every week's different, so it's variety of challenge. There's all different kinds of drag queens, right? Drag queens are kind of like uh, they were described to me once by uh, one of the first people who helped, like, uh, found the show, Michael Anderson, as um, uh, butterflies, but different species. You know, Matthew Anderson, sorry, butterflies, but different species. And so like some of them want to be pretty. Some of them are pageant girls where they really care about like winning the crown and they're competition based. Some of them are comp comedians. Some of them are bar clowns. They're just like funny, natural persons who like to put on, you know, some of them are impersonators who impersonate other queens. Some of them are fashion queens. They're all about the fashion. So they all have different talent brackets and every season they give you like two of everyone kind of species of drag queen and all of them think that they're better than the other ones like the, some of them are like the pageant queens don't like the clown queens and the clown queens don't like the scary ones and the scary ones don't like the ones that are instagram ones that don't dance and the dancers are like this is about dancing and they all have a different version of what they think drag means to them but what Rue tries to explain in the show is everyone's looking for the future of drag they want to know what's next like and so all of the so it kind of has to come out of you during the process meanwhile it's grueling there's like not enough sleep not enough food like they give you cocktails like it's like it gets kind of crazy 
but like as you're going through as you're going through the race which is like big brother or any of those other type of competition based it, it has to do a lot on charisma uniqueness nerve and talent and they give the girls before they get there categories they say we're going to do an all blue category we're going to do a, a, a we're going to do a camouflage wedding we're going to do um dripping in jewels competition we're going to do recycled materials only and they tell them all this before the show starts and they come with like suitcases and boxes full of garments and they have a little dressing area and they set up their whole area and then they give them a mini challenge and a maxi challenge every day, a little one and a small one. The mini one gives you some kind of control, maybe a prize, but some kind of control over the over the next big one. Like you're the leader of the team or you get to pick your garment first or whatever, yeah. and or a little more time on the clock. And then they all compete um, either in solo or in teams. And then at the end of everything, they get judged on how they compete after a runway where they bring a look based on a category everything and the look can sometimes save a bad performance or a bad or not a win or an attitude problem like you know looks really count a lot too it's like your last chance to kind of save yourself and then they all come out and perform and the final two they they break it down there's a winner and the winner wins a prize it's usually worth around five grand um each episode and then uh the the two bottom people the two people who lost have to lip sync a song that they've only been given three days to prepare and they have to battle each other and RuPaul picks listening to the judges critiques but RuPaul is the final decision and picks which queen will win that will stay home and which one goes home that episode and they keep doing this until they narrow it down to the top four where they all lip sync a battle live in front of a live audience usually and uh that winner wins a a crown and scepter a year's supply of makeup and a hundred thousand dollars and almost like a guaranteed millionaire touring career in the next few years because every single club and bar and pride and blah 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 and and brand wants to have them be a part of it when they're the mm-hmm. winner so it's like it's like what miss america used to be but now it's for like gay people and it's like really fun and there's an element of sport <laughs> to it there's an element of talent and there's an element of like resources because some queens will you know will spend a hundred drop eighty thousand dollars on their costumes for the for the year to try to win a hundred and because they know that more money is going to come out of it and they'll put it's like what they put at the roulette table what they bet and then some queens will wrap a garbage bag around them and still win. <laughs> just like, you know, and, and, the, and the queens with all the sequins and the diamonds are all mad. Like, and sometimes you're like, look at all the sequins and diamonds. She deserved it. Like, you know, it just does depends because yeah. it really does rely on how you handle the game and, and your attitude and how good you are and how, how much you let yourself grow and, and let go of everything. So, and so the drama is really fun to watch because they get so tired. They have no phones. They're sequestered. They don't have to talk to anybody. And after every time they come back, they hand them a cocktail. <laughs> it's the only time they get to drink or, drink or go out or do anything. And it's all there. But they're watered down now. Yeah. They were, someone this year said that she's lucid dreaming, which I believe to be true. Because it's like they work all the way to the night. They go to bed and they're still practicing their dance or whatever alone in their hotel room or whatever it is they're working on. And then they come back in the next morning and start all over again. And it almost seems like this one seamless loop, like a big brother or something. So, so towards the end, it gets crazy. So it's just like touring. Like touring, you said? Yeah, it's just yeah. like that's what they're doing. They're doing the touring schedule of touring around the world, but they're doing it within a month in one city. So Yeah, so it's bus, car, 
another club, another club, clean club. Preparing them for that. I do hear the criticism about it, that they're overworked or whatever. And it's like, well, what do you think they're going to be doing once they leave that show? And they're getting booked all over the country. They call it the Olympics of drag because that's the most accurate um, comparison because it's like the level of like- Stamina. Of dedication and training and stuff it takes for somebody to win that competition is outrageous. And there's a lot of underdogs and there's bullies and there's people that are like, you know, there's all kinds of personalities, especially in the earlier years, which is why we're on season 14, but I'm saying, are we 14, 13, 14, 14, but I'm sending you all the way back is because the girls didn't really know the repercussions yet of what the fandom and Hollywood and everything will do to you. Yeah. So they were still fighting a little dirtier back then. Like now everyone's aware that they're being filmed and they're trying to come up with a catchphrase. And that, I know but that was like a time when like, when it just sort of like, it was like when and it kind of exploded there's one girl on there she's actually a very fierce competitor nowadays like years later but at the time she was trying to come up with lines and be different and like try to be off the spectrum you know what i mean try to like really like but it fails for her but um and then that's why all stars are so fun and why people freak out about all stars because some queens get on there they don't realize they're like i'm a fierce queen i have amazing clothes i got great talent and then they're like but I didn't realize I was going to, have to be up all night and I was not going to eat enough and I was going to be so tired and that this bitch was going to be like looking down my neck every day or whatever. And so they fell for other reasons and then they get to go tour and make money and come back and try again. So All Stars is so much fun because everyone in it, you already know, and they're getting another shot at it. And sometimes the All Star Queens, it's even bigger because the lip syncs are more legendary, the, the competitions are more legendary. The bar's been raised. Because it's all fan, it's all fan favorites yeah. fighting it out. So instead of it being two strangers that we're getting to know, it doesn't make as much noise as two legends fighting it out. Like, and so the all stars kind of catapults those stars into a bigger. It's also harder to win because you're everyone's great. Yeah, you know. Whereas like when you're on when you're on a regular season, there's a couple of girls that are like, all right, you gotta go. Like you suck. Like in the beginning, you know, some like weak performers. So knowing all that, knowing all the ins and outs, and behind the scenes and everything could you ever see yourself as a contestant could you pull it off <laughs> well i'm not, i am not really a drag queen but i would love to try <laughs> so that's your no you haven't been asked for celebrity drag race <laughs> no. no okay no but i would you know it'd be fun i think it'd be fun yeah you know if i ever had the opportunity you know sounds like a hell of a lot of hard work it is i imagine it would be it very much is but i just want to throw it in there the um this week's drag race uk versus the world to the queen that went home. You understand that not all of us live where you live, so not everyone was able to watch it straight away, and I sat through an hour and 20 minutes for a result that I knew because that queen ruined it for me straight away. Give us time. Give us yeah. a day. or right, give us two days, and then start tweeting out that you got kicked home, please, because I unfollowed. Did you see it? Did you see it? Yeah, I unfollowed once I found out it was right. It was brutal. I was. It was so brutal. It was brutal. Wouldn't they have limits on their social media? They should. They're supposed to. But because it was so brutal. Be- 20, 24 hours. Yeah. Is that all? 24 oh, hours. Wow. Give us 24 Easy. hours. This wasn't. This was straight away. And I was annoyed. People start doing it here on social media after midnight LA time. They wait till midnight LA time. So it's like, you don't even get it yet. And it's actually weird because I get it on Amazon Prime and it doesn't even post till midnight LA time. So even if I'm in on the East Coast, I got to wait three hours. I got to wait to three in the morning to get it. Oh, wow. You know, but people start posting right away. Like, it's crazy. It's annoying and disrespectful. All Stars is different because the top two winners 
uh, picks who they want to go yeah. home, and then they lip sync versus each other, and whoever wins gets to send someone home. So it's a different thing than the original version where the two losers try to stay. This is the two winners try to send someone. So it's a little more brutal, and it could be someone who doesn't deserve to go home, whereas like usually the people in the bottom two deserve to be there. Mm. But like the people in the top two can choose the best person there to go home. Like, and that's kind of, it wasn't the best person, but it was someone who I did want to win, maybe. Yeah. I would have been happy if they won. I would have been happy too, but I, now I unfollowed them to teach them a lesson. Stop ruining. It's literally the only show I get time to watch, and you've just ruined it for you, me. You, honestly, like, you're funny. Your one unfollow is going to teach her a lesson. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. She's not going to hear this at all. <laughs> She just said the worst night of her career, and you're like, like, fuck you. Yeah. How dare you thank people for PayPaling you tips? I'm never following you again. No, it wasn't <laughs> that. It was um, something about karma, and then it was looks like I'm not gonna have the crown now. And I decided, like, it wasn't. It's not personal against that person. It's every queen who does it. If I'm following someone who, or anyone, if I'm following someone who ruined my drag race result, I'm unfollowing straight away because that's the only show I get time to watch because this podcast takes up every minute of my day. Yeah, I understand that. <laughs> and there are 15 drag races coming. So we'll move on from it. Otherwise, we could be here all day. Now, what's one of your past projects that you would not watch with your grandparents? I, uh... I don't think that I would watch I Spit on Your Grave. I don't think my Nana ever has to see that. She's 91, and I think that's the only thing she's never seen. I think she's fine without seeing that. It's a really good movie, but it's really brutal. I just don't. I think it's too much. What's the uh, most satisfied you felt upon finishing up on a shoot? Oh, what a nice question. I did this horror movie called Kill Theory, and I kind of had like an, myself, my, my own an own personal acting breakthrough like while I'm doing that movie so I had like something that I was trying to accomplish that I felt in a way I never felt before and I think it changed me forever as an actor it's the special things that could really only happen between action and cut or whatever and it, it like happened to me and it felt good and so I, I I think that was a great experience for me uh to shorten it is like I was having a real argument with a friend and then with, a, with another friend, like three of us were arguing about something. And then her and I got cast in this movie together randomly. Oh, wow. And then one of the arguments that I had in the movie was what I was going through at the time. And she was in the room. And it just felt so real that I was able to kind of like get to this point where that was, you know, a vulnerable point that I don't think I was able to achieve before. Because as a comedian, it was hard for me to, to achieve certain levels of vulnerability. Yeah. What to you is the silliest, most ridiculous thing about fame? Because <laughs> obviously you've worked with some people who have had some major attention on them. Lindsay Lohan, Macaulay Culkin, obviously Tom Cruise and being directed by Spielberg. I think the most ridiculous thing about fame is how rich everyone thinks you are. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like... People think that if you're in a commercial that you're a millionaire. And I think that early on in my career, especially like when I was, you know, having trouble paying rent, but I still was in a couple of movies, it's like really hard to, to to deal with because you're too famous to get a job yeah. but, you know, or, you know, or something. But then like, you don't have money. It's like such a weird place to be. Um, I think that's like the most ridiculous thing. Also, I think that uh, we shouldn't get paid for more things that we don't get paid for. Like I, I'm constantly doing things for free, you know, that are considered work. Which is why I think actors get paid so much when we do work, you know, I mean, but like I, I could go on a thousand auditions, which costs like parking and lunches in a different neighborhood and 
all this other stuff. Or if I'm self-taping and someone's editing it for me, like it costs $70 an audition. You know what I mean? But I don't get paid to audition. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of weird. Actually, um, Severo Aguero was just saying that, that um, actors should get paid for jobs where the audition panel raved about their audition, but they didn't get the part. So they should get paid for that because you walk out with <laughs> like your- $10 bump or something. Yeah, because you've walked out with your hopes up thinking, oh, wow, they loved me. And then you just didn't get that. Or give us the feedback even. Sometimes it's just no feedback and you're just constantly going in and you don't know what you're doing wrong. Like, and maybe if 10 people said, he shouldn't have a beard, I'd shave my beard. Yeah. Like, it's just trying to figure, you just don't know. Yeah. And as soon as you try to figure it out, oh my God, you're wrong and forget it. And it's just like the worst. Like, it's not even worth trying to figure out. It's just like, do your own thing and be you and you're going to get the parts you're going to get anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, besides the common things like sexism, racism, all that jazz, what is your industry pet peeve? What's the thing that you think you can change or would want to change about this crazy little job that you have? It's uh, acting. Hmm. I don't really feel like kids should be able to work in Hollywood unless their parent passes some kind of a course or something. Yeah. <laughs> or they have a parent who's already unionized in one of the acting or theater unions. Because I think that um, for a lot of the kids, their parents are absolutely have no, at least talented kids, their parents have absolutely no freaking clue what's going on. And they're brought into this world and they're working. I don't think kids should work. Kids should be kids. There's enough kids out there that are that are talented, that are all like, you know, the, whose parents would take the course or whatever, that these other kids don't need to be doing it, you know. I, I also, I think residuals for streaming. Sorry. Dog, like, amen. Testify. The residual rules that they made were all before streaming. Like, we need to, like, it's so stupid that I make, like, 14 cents yeah. off of, like, things that I was a series regular on. Broadway performers don't get streaming for their performances they do eight shows a week right and when they open a show they record the album and they don't get streaming for that and me and evan have been very vocal about this on this show which is probably why we don't book any producers speaking of theater you went from doing theater to working with larry clark of all directors was that an intense sobering learning curve to suddenly be working with such an auteur controversial you know as a, as a theater person i've been beat up all the time in like rehearsal rooms and stuff like that like especially coming out of college they do all kinds of weird stuff to you you know so i was looking for like the director that would be like the difficult one that i would the artist that i would have to sort of we'll keep you on your toes you know have pull a performance yeah. so he didn't really bother me yeah. um you know it was harder working with a lot of the hollywood kids in that movie and not understanding what that was like because i was more of a normal person at the time and i'm still kind of normal in comparison but like I feel like they were very Hollywood type people that I worked with and I just didn't like get it. Yeah. Their speed. Yeah. No, I've, um, we won't, we won't go into those details because obviously that wasn't the, the nicest time, but <laughs> yeah, it's fine. No, it's fine. Yeah. I've talked about it before. It's not yeah. like something I want to like talk about all the time, but, uh, th but there was like, you know, there's intense things. Brad stole a boat. Bijou was mean to me. Like, you know, um, Rachel was so famous to me because she had replaced uh Natalie Portman and Anne Frank on Broadway and I knew that and also married Macaulay Culkin and was they were also young and still had accomplished all these different things like Michael Pitt just came from Hedwig I was like what the heck like Hedwig yeah. like I couldn't believe that you know these people had done these things and I was going to work with them like so it was nerve-wracking but then Dawson's Creek thank you Daniel yeah <laughs> Michael Pitt is Henry yeah and quit it he quit that yeah I remember sorry I got excited then uh, but yeah, so I mean, it was just like uh, happening so fast and 
it was weird because my yeah my callback was on uh friday and i started filming on monday so it was like oh wow that's you know that's really quick turnaround i was on set getting fittings yeah i'm a bit of an advocate for that film but i don't recommend it because it's it is intense it is bold and it is exploitative and i think it's meant to be because we're we're in this sordid world and we're exploring these sordid lives and i think to have done that in any other filmmaker to have done that in a non-exploitative way i don't think would have had the impact that what it had when i saw it as a 16 year old having gone through the bullying myself and being hospitalized and i had an eddie haskell in my life or a, a bobby kent in my life who i could tell you some stories that would make you very fucking angry about what he did to me i'm sorry no that's it's fine uh, yeah so the point is though that I I I took the film as I didn't take it as an exploitative thing. Like I didn't care if there was sex in it or nudity or anything like that, or you know, graphic violence. Because that murder scene was pretty intense. Because that's what I was looking for: is that how do you portray this story, these characters, and these real lives in this film? You know, and 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 have it have the impact that it that it has. But obviously, the critics. <laughs> It did well at the Venice Film Festival. It did well in some places. Like, I mean, some Roger Ebert loved it. Like, you know, um, John Waters loved it. Like a lot of people that mattered to me and who I thought were cool, were cool liked it, you know. The biggest critic was David McKenna, who wrote American History X. He was the original writer of Bully. And when it came out, he hated it so much, he changed his name to Zachary Long and wrote like this really mean letter to Lionsgate, which singled out my acting choices in it, actually. You're a first. And for my first movie to have some... Yeah. What? He said I, I, I acted like a zombie and I came from the Larry Clark School of Acting. I mean, if it means I'll win an Oscar, like um, Chloe 70, then fine. But I, I, I just like, I don't know what he meant by that, but I just, it, he really bothered me. And at, later on in life, I had a chance to go audition for him. Yep. And I was so scared oh, yeah. because the part wasn't really right right for me. But I, but I was like, I should definitely go in there. And I went in there and he just laughed through my whole audition. The guy's a dick. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but like, uh, yeah, I'm not a fan. I don't know, that was a little bit like alarming for me, but you know, actually a really good story about Larry is, you know, when it came out, I I, I wouldn't say that was exploited, but I was the only one without like an agent or a manager or anything. So I didn't have anyone to like really work my deal. And the only thing I wanted was to have a single card before the film. Like I was like, I want my name before the film or whatever. And everybody else got that. And I didn't get that, I got it at the end, but um, they put everyone else on the poster. Cause when you have, a cast like that everyone's lobbying for more than everyone else it's not like they're lobbying for more than themselves it's always like what else do you have that everyone else doesn't have um and that's the most they can give and so since i uh had no one repping me i had i got everything taken away so when the movie came out i wasn't on the poster and the soundtrack came out and none of them gave permission to use their voices on the soundtrack without royalties but since i didn't have an agent if you listen to the soundtrack of bully in between each song is just my dialogue and it's credited as cast and i'm not even written on the back or in the liner notes anywhere on there and my voice is used on the so i wrote larry a letter and i was like what's the deal with this like i know i didn't have an agent but i know david mckenna didn't like my performance how did you feel because we haven't spoken about it and like you know i'm being written out of everything was i that bad like you know because the movie hadn't come out yet and he was like no you're fabulous he's like i love you in this like you're gonna love it like i can't believe you feel that way i'm so sorry you know and, and then he called me up like a, like i guess i don't know how long later a couple weeks later and he's like meet me in chinatown today can you meet me in chinatown and i said yeah he's like meet me on the corner of blank and blank and i lived in queens but i got up and i 
went all the way down to Chinatown, which was, you know, a journey. And then um, he met me and he gave me this tube and I opened it up and it was the French and Asian movie posters all with my face like this big on it. Like I was like, honestly, like the mo like one of the most featured on, on the posters. So I was like, wow, like, thank you. And he's like, I see, you, I love you. You're great. Like, blah, blah, blah. So my experience with Larry is that memory the most, um, even though there are some others, but um, that's how we, you know, we left off. Um, and every time I see him, it's been all love. So, um, and I really do like the movie. It's studied in colleges to talk about how people relate to each other. It's a true crime. So it's, it's uh, at least, you know, um, the story gets told, you know, as a wearing tale, both to honor the, the Bobby Kent, who wasn't a good person, but he did die, you know, and then, but still a young person. And then also in the same token, let all these people see what they went through and maybe give them some indication as they're all released from jail and the ones that are, you know, to sort of see like what, you know, also, um, it was a redemption film for Larry. Larry had 10 kids and it had got this critical acclaim and it was right on the point with his books like Tulsa and Teenage Lust and the way he was as an artist. And then he got a bunch of money to do Another Day in Paradise. Uh, with, with, and he hated it. He hated that movie. He never wanted to talk about it. He still doesn't talk about it. He felt like Hollywood took his stuff and edited it the way he didn't want it. And, and so this was his return to him making a movie again. And it wasn't easy for him either. The first day of shooting, Brad Renfro tried to steal a boat and got arrested. And, you know, it was just really tough. Like, um, it was a lot going on. Brad was, you know, I didn't even know any of this. Then I was not as clued in as I am now when I watch all the stories and I've been to Brad's funeral and I've read articles and everything else, but oh. Brad wasn't sober yet. And Larry just picked him up and threw him in the back of a car and drove him to set to work. So Brad was like coming down off heroin while working with us and probably going through so much that I didn't know about. And um, and it was tough. Like, I mean, I, here I am, you know, I came from the thing I did before this was South Pacific at Miami Shores Theater, you know, and then I'm like <laughs> thrust into this world where everyone's so fast and so uh, much is going on that um, I was like, wow, this is the beginning of everything, but I could lose it at any moment. So it was a it was the volatile time, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was it was a great movie, and still is a great movie to have been my first introduction to Hollywood. Um, I'm proud of it, and I love watching it. Unfortunately, I haven't seen Bully, but I was just uh, reading up on it, and the first film that popped into my head. And I know nothing about the director. The first film that popped into my head was Kids. I was like, oh, well, he's he's done that. You know, he he directed that as well. And then and then I'm reading further, and like he did Ken Park. Oh my god! You know these. I've seen all these. Right, but these movies are all compliments to each other. I think, mm. um, and like they they are like this his genre of movie. I think of that like almost documentary style footage, and I think that's why David McKenna was so mad about the movie because we didn't really follow the script. The script and his script sucked. I'll say it straight <laughs> out. His script talked like like adults think teenagers talk like. Like it was like that would be awesome. We should go. All right, B. What's up, B? Like it was all this bullshit that we don't speak like. And so he was like, forget all that crap. It was tripping all of us up. He was like, the object is that you guys are leaving from here and you need to get the bat. And then he would be like, go and let us kind of talk our way through the the script. And I I'm a I'm a big I love writers, so um, I would uh, in my improv, I would always get the line that they wrote. He wrote in as well as whatever else I was saying. I would always try to get the exact point across, you know, but he hated me anyway. So I don't care because <laughs> his <laughs> script sucked. 
but yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, but it was a great experience, and um, it was also in my hometown. It was weird, you know. To get, I got my first play, uh, my first commercial, my first movie, like all in my hometown. Yeah, I know what that's mm-hmm. like, dude. I have Broadway legends on this show, and I'm literally sitting on my bed doing it half the time <laughs> in my pajama pants, and I just don't say anything because I just want to be comfortable. So I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Oh, well. you just did. No, I'm in short shorts today. So no one needs to see that. But with this um, Larry Clark thing, like, it's, is it the Barbara Streisand effect where you, you know, you try and shut something down and it just becomes more popular? Maybe. I think that's the term. Yeah, the Streisand effect. Uh, no, I don't really think that uh, David McKenna's letter made that much noise outside of Hollywood gossip. No, with, um, with Ken Park, it was actually banned in Australia. Yeah. It was all over the news that there's this film that's getting banned. And, of course, I immediately had to see it. We all saw it. We're all yeah. So we all saw it that way because they tried to ban it. Oh yeah. wow! Yeah, we had to see it, and we managed to you know get a hands-on copy. So yeah, it was hard to get that too. Yeah, I remember trying to get. That. I remember somebody, uh, a fan, came to like one of my comedy shows and gave me like a VHS of Ken Park. Here you go. I know you wanted to see it, and I never got to see it. Oh, that was know. how I got to see it. Yeah, I just want to point out that on the back of this bully DVD, they need to start actually reading what they're putting on there. It says ferocious. One of the best films of the summer with an exclamation mark. It, it just comes across as if they're excited by it. And I think like someone died, like just be careful <laughs> with the, you critics out there, like the way you're, you know, the DVD covers, the way you're putting the, the quotes on there, that just be a bit more careful at how that comes across. Cause it's like ferocious. Like it's like, yeah, it's really cool. And, but it's, it's dark and it's brutal and it's sad. It was from that period of time where indie films were really like ruling the world. Like everybody wanted like to be in an indie, everyone wanted to make an indie. They were buying everything at Sundance. Like that was like the era of that. I remember we we had a problem with the movie because the motion picture company wanted to rate it X. Mm-hmm. And the for the movie before that, that, the last movie to be rated X before that was Showgirls. And rated X was considered like a kiss of death for movies in America because George Bush had made this bill, he passed some kind of bill about uh, if it's something is not rated, it can't play in a, in a major theater mm-hmm. because of Columbine. They felt that some movies and video games are too violent and it's when video games started getting rated. So they wouldn't give it anything but an X rating. And I remember Larry complaining specifically about how Shannon Elizabeth could be fully nude in American Pie, but then uh, if he has a fully nude person in a drama, it's for some reason comedy would allow it. But drama, the same things we could say in comedy, we couldn't get away with in drama. Yeah. And I remember being so shocking that uh, in in Bully that she sits down and takes the pregnancy test nude and like pees on the pregnancy test. And I remember the other day just watching something where someone was peeing on the toilet naked. And I was like, wow, I remember when that was the first time I saw that in my movie. Was that Nicole Kidman? Eyes wide shut? No, it was it was in something recent that's recently came out on HBO. Maybe I don't know, but but like oh, yeah. I think they showed Sarah Jessica Parker peeing in uh, in Sex in the City. It's just I don't remember what it was, but I remember being like how that was so shocking that she peed. I remember my grandparents. It's funny you brought them up, but they were they were at the premiere of Bully. I remember them turning around and looking at me like when she peed, <laughs> like, <laughs> like that was one of the like worst things that, that was in that movie. Uh, it's funny how there's like literal death and that's the thing that people worry about. But yeah. it's like the, uh, you know, an old Italian grandmother, like these are your friends up on that screen. Yeah. 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 A little bit. Well, you know, she's in bully my grandmother. Oh, is she? Yeah. At the end, she's comforting my aunt in the courtroom. So that's my actual Nana. 
And then she's also in uh, a movie I did called Stateside. She had a scene with Penny Marshall. And I brought her into a bunch of things like that. So, And I mention her in almost every movie I make. I say Nana, if I could fit it in. Oh, you've just gotten it in now. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> that's actually, that's probably why I wrote that question. Because that's a fact on your IMDb. Oh, is it? I don't even know what's on there. That's, I'm so bad at that. Stuff. That's I think like, yeah. there, that's why I wrote there. And I actually wrote Nan on here. <laughs> like, you can see I've written Nan. Oh, yeah. But I said grandparents when I read the question out. Remember I said to you yesterday, Ethan? Your name's not Ethan. It's Evan. No. <laughs> Sorry. Here I'm worried about getting guests' name right, uh, and I end up getting my co-host wrong. Um, I was saying to you yesterday that I sometimes change things at the very, very last minute, and I read it out differently. So, yeah. Sorry. Ethan. I actually was in a movie called On the Inside, which is like a, a story about a jail with uh, yeah. Olivia Wilde and Nick Stahl again from Bully. Yeah. Uh, but in that movie, uh, they want me to take someone to solitary confinement because I'm like one of the like security guys. And, and I was trying to figure out how to say Nana in the movie. And it was my last day on the shoot. And I go, nah, nah, not this guy. Nah. Like, I said, nah. <laughs> and they snuck it right in. Yeah, why not? Have you ever tried method acting? Yeah, I think yeah. a little bit. I think that there's something about it that is off for me um, because it's like I'm trying to be a puppet master. It feels more like I'm a puppet master when I'm acting, you know, and, and when I'm method acting, I'm not as in control. Like someone else is in control. If I have like a really good director, I will be that way. Like yeah. I could take myself to certain places and allow myself to be there because I have somebody to lift me up or let me know I got five more minutes or cool it down a little bit where it's going to take 20 this time or someone that takes care of me and like lets me know what's going on. But if I'm not that way, then uh, I just kind of reserve it a little bit because I feel like sometimes being an actor is selfish. Like you want to feel all this shit, but really it's about what you guys feel when you watch it. So it's like, it's more about what making you feel something than it is about me having to personally feel something. People are so like, I want to be, I want to feel the scene. And it's kind of like, but you know, there was like a. I don't want to do it to you because it's it's mean. So this is fake. What I'm about to say, it's not true. Okay, but there was a teacher who said to like one time when I was in school, she was like a guest teacher, and she was like, when I was nine, I watched my best friend get murdered in front of me, and she just said it like that, like just when I was nine, I watched my. And if I just did that to you without that preface of hey, this isn't real, like you guys would have this feeling in your chest. And I didn't have to act. I didn't have to run around in a circle outside and do jumping jacks to get to the point that I'm going to come here and deliver that line to you. Sometimes just the facts, just the words are powerful enough. And people put all kinds of breathing and things on top of it to give it. And I think it, it takes away from the human connection. The Stradivarius violin is like the, like one of the most renowned violins, if not the, because it's so sensitive. If I put a bunch of Stradivariuses in the kitchen and then I'm holding one here and and I pluck the C chord, the C chords on the ones in the kitchen will vibrate. They like feel each other like, and human beings, imagine how much more we connect that way. So it's like, if I could play the audience, like that's why I love doing live performances, live comedy, live theater more than anything. But, and even when I'm doing film and television, I'm performing for the crew or whatever. Like I'm always trying to get everyone to break up or because I think that that's what feeds me and my performance soul. But I, it's like, all I have to do is say, like, oh, man, when I was nine years old. And then you feel that. Your C chords all start vibrating. So I feel like if I'm so concentrating on feeling things, I'm not even going to realize what you're feeling. And it, it works different for different people. Like, somebody will say, oh, he's bullshit. You have to feel. And that's somebody else. Like, you know, we all work differently. But it's like whatever gets the performance out of you, I think, is 
um, is all that it takes. And I know that it's like the butterfly analogy for the drag queens. Like we're all different kinds of actors. But for me, I take a little bit of that, but not too much. It'll mess with me. Yeah. What question do you hope you never get asked again in an interview? Um... And is it, will there be a Mean Girls 2? And I'm putting it out there in the world. We do not need a Mean Girls 2, okay? We don't need it. That movie is perfect as it is. That's all. Sorry. Sure, but why not another movie with the whole same cast, different characters? Cool. Excellent. I'm down for that. You know, they're just going to remake it instead. That's why we don't need that. We already have a Mean Girls. <laughs> Anyways. Well, they're going to make the Mean Girls the musical movie soon. So that's, yeah, that's, kind of, that's what Tina Fey is working on right now. Evan so loved it. There will be another Mean Girls movie. Yeah, the musical's great. And Gray Henson's awesome. I'm so glad he's awesome. Because honestly, like, I was a little bit like, this thing like takes over my life. I'm basically like the Tin Man and Wizard of Oz. Like everywhere I go, mm. I'm Damien to people. And now I have to like share that with someone or like break it off or give it away or I don't know what, you know, it's just like a weird thing, yeah. you know, because it was that blue hoodie and sunglasses is so a part of my identity. I have so much fan art with it. People see me with it. It's everywhere. Yeah. You know, it follows me everywhere I go. But it, you know, like I said, it only expands the universe. I love what she did with the musical. It was fantastic. Yeah. But anyways, we're not going to ask about Mean Girls. I yeah, promise you we wouldn't. Um, I just wanted to put it out there that we don't <laughs> need a sequel. Yeah. Stop asking. <laughs> what question do you hope is never asked again in an interview was the question. Is there going to be a Mean Girls too? <laughs> that is, yeah. I thought that would be the answer. I really did. That's the, you got it right. You got it right. <laughs> I guess so. I think also, I think what I hate is like when people go, are you still acting? Like when people don't do the research to find, you know, or know what's up or uh, who's not still acting? What does that mean? No, I quit. You know what I mean? Like how many people quit? I don't know. I mean, it happens a lot in, in the music industry where they've got a, a big band in the eighties and then they'll just disappear and you're like, what happened? Well, they got married and they had kids and they, their life got in the way and some come back and some never do. A nice way to say is, do you have any new music coming out? Not, are you still a musician? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're still yeah. musicians. They're just not in that band anymore. And, you know, like, I think it's the worst question that you could ask any performer is, are you still doing that thing? Yeah. It's like the worst. It's like it's like um, it's yeah. a read for non-creatives. It, the question is: Are you still with that person? And most of the time, the answer is no. You asked me earlier what, what like a silly thing that like uh, is bugging a celebrity. Like, what people want like a selfie with you? I think it's like I understand, but like sometimes people will take like the selfie and as soon as it snaps they walk away without saying anything to you like goodbye or thank you or or anything. What? It's like it's like they want this selfie. And then they get it and then they're done. They're putting the selfie yeah. in selfish. They'll talk to you as long as you want to talk to them before you they'll hold the phone in their hand with the camera on, like you don't see it, like load it to their body, and you know exactly what they want. And they're like asking about all kinds of innocuous shit. And I'll be like, Did you want a picture? Oh my god, if you don't mind, or like and they make up just come up and ask me for a picture. I love taking pictures of people, but I don't like when people are like shady about it. Yeah. Like they're stealing something from me. Yeah. But even then like say thank you or like round off. The absolute worst is when someone took a picture of you from across the room or something. That's the worst. Yeah, that's that's not cool. Yeah, I don't get it. I've said it on the show before. Fans these days. And it stems from, I think, things like Mean Girls, that the fandom is so huge, and Harry Potter and Buffy and Star Wars and all these things that fans own what they love. So therefore, if you're an actor involved in that, it doesn't matter if you're eating dinner with your family in a restaurant. That's what I think it is. I think it's the fans feel like they own the material and 
it puts people in a position where they it was like that there was a broadway performer got into a car and a fan climbed into the car to get her autograph and it's like what what yeah that's kind of crazy what are you doing like stop it i will like use the subway in new york if i'm going somewhere but if i'm going home i won't because people will follow you yeah like you can use it going out but like then they go oh sorry my stop is three stops ago but i just had to ask you for a picture and you're like fuck now you know what my stop is and it's like it just gets weird no fans make my eye twitch which i understand that the industry cannot operate without fans so but yes anyways i thank you so much for joining us it's been awesome having you on and thank you for having it's really me. lovely to meet you and I'd force you to listen to christian metal yeah i don't know how i'll forgive you for that but <laughs> <laughs> that's fine we do tout this as a torture chamber on the poster <laughs> and yet somehow we keep getting guests to come on this show and i don't know what we're doing right i really don't but thank you i had a good time um but yeah so where can people find you on the social medias i'm everywhere on social media at what's up danny tiktok yep. twitter instagram all that at what's up danny venmo venmo yeah we've got to slip that one yeah. in awesome <laughs> no to you at home you can find us at thrash and treasure or at thrash and treasure podcast one of the two but yeah anyways you take care and we shall see you next time Hello. awesome thank you okay yes th- thank you so much for talking to Just bring me puppies.